for years, Humira, a drug that treats autoimmune conditions like rheumatoid arthritis, has been the best-selling drug on the planet. It made $200 billion over the last two decades. And Humira has done so well for so long for one big reason. It's had the market nearly all to itself. But now that is coming to an end. Not one, not two, but at least eight generic versions of the drug arrived this year. Patients, insurers, employers are giddy with excitement, ready for the savings to pile up. I think it's about time for you, Myra. This is such a big deal for many of our clients. This will be probably one of the biggest projects ever. So then why is one of the country's leading drug economists feeling like this? My first reaction was, huh. Today the end of Humira's epic reign and what it means for the future of generic drugs in America. From the studio at the Leonard Davis Institute at the University of Pennsylvania, I'm Dan Gorenstein. This is Tradeoffs. For a long time, generic drugs have been like this light at the end of a tunnel. Every time a brand new drug hits the market, its first several years are free from competition. Time to rake in profits, reap the rewards of being first. But no matter how high prices go, how much pain patients and employers face, eventually the generic cavalry arrives. Best-selling drug in the country, Lipitor, is now available in generic form. Wednesday, Pfizer's patent runs out. And Plavix is going to go generic next May. Sure, this market has plenty of flaws, but overall, it's worked pretty damn well. Generic drugs save patients, insurers, and the government more than $300 billion a year. Nine out of every 10 prescriptions filled in the U.S. are generic, and we pay less for these drugs than people in most other countries. But Industry insiders and economists like Marta Voshinska, a fellow at the Brookings Institution, worry that this generic light at the end of the tunnel is starting to dim. Marta began her academic career in 2002, right around when Humira first launched. I started as an assistant professor of marketing at uh, the Harvard Business School. She was studying what, at the time, was the hottest drug on the market, a pill for people with high cholesterol. Until Humira came about, Lipitor was the largest selling drug ever. These drugs, the two biggest blockbusters of all time, have a lot in common. Aggressive marketing strategies, steep price hikes, epic legal efforts to delay generic competition. There is, though, one difference. It can sound minor and technical, but Marta says it's major. There are really two drug categories, small molecule and large molecule drugs. Lipitor is a small molecule drug, the kind that generic companies have been successfully copying and selling on the cheap for decades. Within a year of Lipitor losing its monopoly, sure enough, generics had cut the blockbuster's U.S. revenue by 80%. But Humira is a large molecule drug, also known as a biologic. Biologics are harder and more expensive for generic drug makers to copy. So in 2010, Congress gave this type of generic its own rules, even its own name, biosimilars. They have done really well in Europe. In the United States, biosimilars have struggled. 
nothing like the market-devouring, price-plummeting impact that generics usually have. And that's a problem because biologics are stopping tumors, controlling diabetes, changing lives. But they're also eating up more and more of the country's healthcare dollars. Biologics make up close to half of U.S. drug spending, even though they only represent about 2 or 3% of prescriptions. That's why people like Marta are watching this Humira test so closely, because on paper, it's a golden opportunity for biosimilars. All of the pieces seem to be there. Tons of money on the table, eight companies ready to jump in. But I still worry about their ability to break out. If the U.S. biosimilar market fails this test, then it's a clear signal something's fundamentally broken. And that would mean a future with less meaningful generic biosimilar competition, where patients pay more, insurers raise premiums, taxpayers foot bigger bills for programs like Medicare. So that's what's on the line and why insiders are holding their breath as eight companies line up to take on Humira. The first biosimilar is coming to market any day now, at least seven others later this year. For the past several weeks, our senior producer, Leslie Walker, has been talking to experts, economists like Marta, insurers, employer groups, drug industry insiders, asking what's the chance these biosimilar companies will succeed. Leslie, so glad you're here. Thanks for having me, Dan. So we just told our listeners that Humira represents by far the biggest test our country's pretty small biosimilar market has ever faced. The big question, Leslie, for me... What what counts as a passing grade? So there's basically two signals people are looking for to know whether this biosimilar market is healthy or if it's headed for life support. The first is savings. Like how much are we talking? So there's no magic number, but experts told me they're looking for insurers to save something like 30 to 50% out of the gate. So that's a lot less than the 90% savings we've seen with traditional generics. It is. But it's a lot of cash still when you remember that Humira costs $70,000 a year. And then you've got the second sign. And that one, Dan, I'm calling pie. An economist might call it market share. And the question is this. Can these biosimilar companies steal a big enough slice from Humira? You say pie, I think cheesecake. Does cheesecake count, Leslie, as pie? I'm going to go no. <laughs> okay. Um, setting that aside for the time being, why, why should anyone outside of Wall Street care about how this pie or cheesecake uh, gets cut up? It's a reasonable question. So the amount of sales these biosimilars can snatch from Humira is critical for a couple reasons. Most obvious, more pie means more profits, and it takes a lot more money and time to bring a biosimilar to market compared to those small molecule generics. So all that trouble needs to be worth it to drug makers. Otherwise, these companies might not bother making more biosimilars to compete against the next Humira. That's right. The other thing about the size of the pie slice, Dan, it reflects whether doctors are prescribing these biosimilars, are insurers covering them, are patients trusting them. And that's been a big struggle for biosimilars so far. That's for sure. So let me just recap here for a minute, Leslie. On the eve of the biggest test biosimilars have ever faced, experts and industry people are looking for them 
to one, deliver deep discounts, and two, grab a hefty slice of pie. How confident are the people that you're talking to that Humira's competitors are actually going to be able to get this done? Well, to be honest, most people I spoke to were hesitant to make any kind of prediction, even off the record. They told me there's just so many unprecedented variables here. It's tough to put odds on. But that's okay, because on this podcast, as you know, Dan, we like to go off more than crystal balls and vibes. We like a little thing called evidence. Oh, yes, we do. And I've got some, but I feel like we should get into it. Can I do this part? Knock yourself out. After the break. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome back. We're days away from the debut of the first generic version of Humira, the best-selling drug of all time. Some folks are watching closely because the $20 billion a year drug impacts a lot of people patients, insurers, investors, and others are watching because this could answer a much bigger question. Can the U.S. ever develop a robust biosimilar market where prices drop and drug makers jump in? That's the focus of our story today, and senior producer Leslie Walker is helping us tell it. Hey again, Leslie. Hey, Dan. So before the break, you mentioned that there's some evidence that can give us a sense of how biosimilars will do against the Goliath Humira. Can they deliver those deep dish discounts and hefty pie slices? Wait a second. Did you just say deep dish discounts, Dan? Your Chicago is showing. I love deep dish pizza. I mean, it's pretty good. Don't blame you. So this evidence, though, it comes from this other biologic called Lantus. It's a kind of long-acting insulin for diabetics, and it's got a couple close copycat competitors. Okay, so first question, Leslie, did those Lantus competitors deliver those deep dish discounts? Depends on who you're talking about, Dan. Patients haven't seen a lot of savings, but a 2021 study in JAMA Internal Medicine shows insurers were paying about 60% less for insulin three years after that first competitor arrived. That sounds pretty good. It is. And experts like Marta Voshinska at Brookings are actually even more bullish about Humira's competition. We are going to see tremendous savings. I have no doubt about it. That's because there are eight biosimilars in the mix here, Dan. Lots of research shows more players means more savings. Okay, seems like we can move on to dessert. Start slicing up that pie of yours, Leslie. Well, you know, Dan, I was actually thinking a burger might be a better metaphor here. Hold up, Walker. First with the pie, now burgers? I guess we're both hungry. (laughs) I'm not sure what happened. But seriously, Dan, I just had to share this crazy stat with you that I found as I reported this story. So get this. 
In 2021, the drug company AbbVie made almost as much off Humira as the McDonald's Corporation made worldwide that year. Wait, what? You heard me. The Golden Arches, the master of the McNugget, the baron of the Big Mac, barely brought in more dough than this one prescription drug. You can almost hear the AbbVie executives humming that old McDonald's commercial, right? I'm loving it. Da, 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 da. I'm loving it. <laughs> so, so Leslie, what's the Lantus data say? Were, were drug companies able to take a big enough bite out of that burger? Because, of course, the bigger the bite, the more likely they are to bring more biosimilars to market in the future. Well, neither of Lantus's two closest competitors cracked even 20% of their markets in the first year. For comparison, Dan, in just 12 months, those traditional generics, the small molecule ones, gobble up 90% of their burgers on average. That's the piece that I worry about. Experts like Marta say how much market share biosimilars get here is the toughest part of the test. Because I, I very much expect that spending will go down because prices will come down. But what I worry about is that Humira will still hang on to the market. Leslie, can, can you explain that? What, what's so hard about this? So for starters, Dan, the companies that make these biologic drugs, in the case of Lantus, that's Sanofi, they spend years and tons of money preparing for this burger fight. They're wooing patients with coupons, developing new, slightly different versions of their original drug to make these biosimilar competitors seem less similar. Hang on to market share by any means, Got it. And is that what Sanofi did? Yep. And it's exactly what Humira's manufacturer, Avvi is doing now, too. They've tweaked Humira and launched not one, but two similar new drugs. AbbVie is already predicting that pair will top $20 billion by 2027. So AbbVie is doing its best to block competitors from taking too big a bite. But I know drug makers fending off traditional generics use these tactics all the time. What else makes it hard for biosimilars to get theirs? I call it the menu problem. Again with the food walker? We really need to get you a snack, girl. I know. I'm waiting for one. So insurers, right? They have this list of drugs they cover. It's called a formulary. Some biosimilars have struggled to get on that menu, usually because they can't come to terms with insurers. Others, Dan, get on that menu, but find very few docs and patients order their drug. One big reason, the insurer basically slaps the same copay on both the biosimilar and the branded drug. So what you're saying is there's no incentive to switch. Like, if you have a complex chronic condition or treat people who do, why stop using the brand you already know and like when it doesn't cost any less? Exactly. I, I'm wondering here, Leslie... You would think insurers would push patients to biosimilars like they do with traditional generics. You would think that, but these biologics are much more expensive. All that money can distort incentives, right? Lead insurers and their middlemen to cut deals with drug makers that help their own bottom lines, but squeeze biosimilars market share. It's become a big enough problem. The federal government and some states are calling out these deals, saying they undermine competition and hurt patients. So is that happening with Humira? Well, these contracts are confidential, so no one knows for sure. But we do know this. Two of the three biggest insurance middlemen plan to charge patients about the same for Humira and its competitors. 
a crumb of good news here, Dan. The national insurer, Kaiser Permanente, told me they're taking Humira off the menu this year, which should give their biosimilar of choice a big leg up. There's one other reason some experts think at least one of the eight biosimilar companies may still get a pretty big bite here. And I tell you who that is, except I have no idea how to pronounce why, it. Why will... I never know how to say it. B- Ingelheim? Is Beringer... That... I think I'm pronouncing it right. Beringer Ingelheim. Beringer Ingelheim. Well, it's a German name, so it's it's Beringer Ingelheim. <laughs> I know. It's just an <laughs> obstacle course of terrible names to pronounce. Let's call them B.I. for now. B.I. That's right. Let's go with B.I. So the thing about this B.I., Dan, is their biosimilar has this special status from the FDA, something a couple of other competitors have applied for, too. And whenever a pharmacist gets an order for Humira, in most cases, they'll be able to just swap in that B.I. drug. In general, pharmacists have to call the doctor's office and get a new prescription for a biosimilar, a bureaucratic nightmare. So because B.I.'s got this special status, a lot more patients might start getting BI's drug instead of Humira. Is that what you're saying? Yes, but only if insurers agree to cover BI's drug in the first place, put it up on that menu. And that's a big if. All right, Leslie, sounds like some good news for Humira biosimilars, at least a fighting chance. But on the whole, given the evidence, all the business and regulatory hurdles that biosimilars are facing, it seems very possible that they're going to come up short here, you know, really fail to deliver on the savings or grab the market share that we see traditional generics get. At the top of the show, Leslie, we said that if biosimilars can't pass this test, a shot at the best-selling drug of all time, that's a sign something's fundamentally broken about this market. So I'm curious, what then? So experts like Marta say some drug companies might leave the biosimilar market altogether, meaning fewer competitors around to drive down prices. Other people I talked to in Washington said Congress could respond in two very different ways. They could double down on competition, right? Basically change the rules so it's easier and cheaper for biosimilars to thrive. Or they could go in the exact opposite direction and regulate. Like what Congress passed last year with the Inflation Reduction Act, giving Medicare power to negotiate drug prices, ding companies who raise them too fast? Exactly. And in some ways, that law opened up Pandora's box, put the kind of price regulation that was once considered unthinkable squarely on the table. Important test coming up. Leslie, thanks so much for your really good work on this. Thanks, Dan. I'm Dan Gorenstein, and this is Tradeoffs. Lisa Fitzpatrick spent 20 years working in some of the most prestigious jobs in health policy. But a few years ago, she walked away to go after a foundational but often invisible problem. People feeling disconnected, people feeling unheard, people being confused by health information or being fearful of things they don't know. One doctor's crusade to help more people understand their own health care and why insurers are starting to buy in. Next time on Tradeoffs. Thanks for listening to Tradeoffs. If you've just discovered us, remember to subscribe to the feed so you never miss an episode. Subscribing is free and easy on whichever podcasting app you use, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, anywhere. 
The Tradeoffs team is producers Ryan Levy and Alex Olgan, editor Kate Cahan, executive director Jessica Silverman, audience engagement lead Shannon Crane, research reporter Soleil Shaw, sound designer Andrew Perella, executive editor Dan Gorenstein, and senior producer Leslie Walker. The Tradeoffs theme song was composed by Ty Sitterman with additional music this episode from Blue Dot Sessions and Epidemic Sound. Tradeoffs coverage of healthcare costs is supported in part by Arnold Ventures and West Health. Additional thanks to Robin Feldman, Mary Anna Sokel, Jeremy Sharp, Steve Pearson, Eric Percher, Eileen Pinkay, James Gelfand, David Chen, Samir Osuri, Brian Lehman, Ben Epolito, and Mark Trusheim. Thanks also to all our listeners who helped to support our work, including Ellen Magenheim, Philip Glan, and Elise Cohen. Our media partner is Side Effects Public Media, based at WFYI. Tradeoffs is supported by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, Arnold Ventures, West Health, the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation, the Scan Foundation, the Sozose Foundation, the Leonard Davis Institute of Health Economics at the University of Pennsylvania, California Healthcare Foundation, and the National Institute for Healthcare Management Foundation. The views expressed in this episode are those of the individuals and not those of trade-off staff, advisors, or funders. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc., 